I will try to not make this so wiggly. That is England. Around 1500, the king of England was Henry VII, started the Tudor line of kings. I, not T-U-D-O-R, not T-O-O-T-E-R. It is the Tudor line. Bear with me, you are about to enter a land of a lot of names and a lot of history compressed. I will try to make this clear. Henry VII had two notable children. Henry VIII, who, we will, who plays a huge role in this story, and a daughter who married James the Fourth, I believe, of Scotland. Now, you remember down here, Ferdinand and Isabella, famous couple, married, joined two kingdoms, launched Columbus's expedition. They had two notable daughters. Joanna the Mad was her name, mentally unstable. Her son was Charles V. Got that. They had another daughter, Catherine of Aragon, who at the very young age was betrothed to Henry VII's oldest son named Arthur. They were arranged, this was going to be an alignment between Spain and England, when they were just two or three. They finally met when they were, I think, 12 or 13. When they met, they found out that they even though they could write because they wrote in language, in Latin, they pronounced the Latin words differently, so they couldn't communicate very well. They married at around ages 15 or 16, but a few months later, Arthur died, which left Catherine of Aragon, a Spanish girl in England. So, even though it was technically illegal, she became engaged to Arthur's brother, Henry VIII, who was several years younger than, than Catherine. Uh, they got married when they were, but when she was, I think, 20. These are just approximate dates, I apologize. And Henry was a few years younger. They were married for about 25 years. Henry was a macho man. One of the things he liked to do to impress dignitaries was wrestle horses. <laughs> so babe, you want to see me beat up a horse? <laughs> so they would bring in a horse and he would mangle it to the delight of the people. Now, <clears throat> it came to Henry VIII's attention that Luther was writing a book attacking the sacraments called the Babylonian Captivity. So Henry VIII wrote a treatise against it. Some people, based on the fact that no current member of the monarchy could write a treatise on anything, believe that Henry VIII didn't actually write it, that maybe Thomas Cranmer did, who we will meet later. But anyway, that is why the Pope bestowed on Henry VIII the honorary title Defender of the Faith, which is still part of the official monarchy's title that Elizabeth II has after her name. Now, Henry VIII wanted a bunch of strapping sons. Unfortunately, Catherine of Aragon had only given him a daughter, several, had several miscarriages. So, he needed to find another woman who could give him a son. He also was having an affair with the Boleyn sisters, who were servants of Catherine in part of her court. Anne Boleyn said, look, no sleeping with me unless we get married. But he said, that's a problem, I'm already married. So suddenly, Henry VIII had a battle of conscience. How to get rid of Catherine? He went to the Pope 
and he wanted the Pope to give him a special dispensation that allowed him to divorce Catherine. He said, my conscience is so guilty. Leviticus says, thou shalt not uncover your brother's wife, and here I am marrying my brother's wife, and I just feel so guilty that I'm in sin. Please free me from my wife. <laughs> Catherine of Aragon responded that we were only married for a few months, and if you want me to be really personal, we never actually even consummated. So I'm not technically even married to your brother who died then. He says it doesn't matter. Now, at this point, remember I talked about how Francis I had aligned with the Pope to attack Charles V, and they, Charles V conquered uh, the Pope's territory. So, and this was right at the time when the Pope was under Charles V's jurisdiction. Now, you have to remember that Catherine of Aragon was Charles V's aunt. So, the Pope, who was under Charles V's thumb, was not likely to anger the Pope by allowing his aunt to have a divorce forced upon her. So what to do for Henry VIII? A professor by the name of Thomas Cranmer said, you know, historically the, the Pope's not even over you. Put this question towards the lawyers in the academic circles. And the academic circles said, you know what, yeah, you should be free. We agree with your interpretation. You should be free to get rid of Catherine. At this point, I'm just running through a lot of names here, trying the best way to introduce them. Thomas More was one of King Henry VIII's advisors. He was the chancellor, which meant he was one of the top political advisors, one of the most powerful men under him. Thomas More was a good friend with Erasmus. Thomas More was the one who wrote Utopia. Thomas More was the one who attacked William Tyndale's Bible. But Thomas More could not handle this idea of Henry divorcing Catherine. And so when Henry made the bold claim, he said, if the Pope will not give me a dispensation, I am going to make myself the head of the church. And he made himself the supreme head of the Church of England, severing himself from Rome. The Pope excommunicated Henry VIII and all of England, but Henry didn't care. Thomas More refused to come to the wedding of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, who at this point was already pregnant. So Thomas More was beheaded. And in the words of one of the jesters, Chancellor More was Chancellor No More. So now Henry is married to Anne Boleyn. After he'd been married to Catherine, Catherine ended up dying a few days later. This was good news for Protestantism. Because even though Henry was still a Roman Catholic at heart, still agreed with Roman Catholic doctrines, the men under him who were willing to cut off the Catholic Church were pro-Protestant. Thomas Cranmer, the one who suggested that this be given to the lawyers, Henry liked his idea so much that he made Thomas More the Archbishop of Canterbury. England was divided into several dioceses, bishops, and then divided into two provinces. One was the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was the one in the king's territory who was over all the, the bishops of that province. So Thomas Cranmer was made the Archbishop of Canterbury. Thomas Cranmer wrote or edited the Book of Common Prayer, which is still a, a terrific devotional book, but it brought in liturgy, which is the order of service. It brought in a Protestant liturgy, Protestant doctrine. He was also open to the Bible coming into England. And Thomas Cromwell, who was also a Protestant, who took over as the chancellor after Thomas More, Thomas Cromwell. So he now had his chief religious advisor, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and his chief political advisor, Cromwell, as pro-Protestant. I'm going to pause that story for a little bit and go back and tell you a little bit 
about the history of the Bible in England. Because John Wycliffe in the 1300s, called the Morning Star of the Revol Reformation, realized that the king should be over the pope and that the Bible should be our authority, not councils or Protestants. I mean, not councils or popes. His idea, he was, he was, ex he was um, burned, but thankfully he was already dead when he was burned. So it was much easier to take. But he, his ideas continued by preachers, and they were affecting. But there was still a great ignorance of God's word throughout England. The priests were ignorant. There was a young man by the name of William Tyndale who started to have a passion for the truth. He was encountering Luther's ideas. This, this is, remember, this is right around 1520. So Luther's ideas, like, boom, within a couple years, because of the printing press, were already de being debated in England. That's just amazing, the impact the printing press had. He wanted the scripture to be known, and he was talking to some priests, and he was appalled at their lack of biblical knowledge. He says, if God lets me tarry before many years are done, the plow boy behind the plow <laughs> will know more scripture than you clergy. He went to the bishops and he says, I've got to, let's translate the Bible into the English language. Wycliffe had translated some of the Bible, but Wycliffe's books were banned. They were, it was illegal to own Wycliffe's books. He found that he was not receiving report. So Tyndale went to Europe. He actually spent some time in Wittenberg, so he most likely met Luther, and started translating the New Testament into English. Now Thomas More and Henry VIII were adamant against the Bible coming into the common language, coming ashore. Henry VIII looked at the Peasants' Revolt, which had by this time happened, and he said, that's what happens when people have the Bible in their own language. It leads to revolt, we'll lose all control over people. We can't have them reading the Bible in their own language. But there was a group of wealthy English merchants who were in the wool trade. Now, wool was the main economic product of England. And you've noticed how it shaped the English language. We talk about unraveling a, min, uh, a mystery, call a woman who is not married a spinster. Uh, talked about something being dyed in the wool. Uh, and you'll find that there's other phrases too to just show that wool and the areas related to it had a big effect on England. But these wool merchants were willing to fund Tyndale's project for the Bible. And once Tyndale's Bible, the New Testament, was finished, not even the whole New Testament, just parts of it, it was smuggled into England in, ba in bales of wool, in boxes. And it just started spreading all over England. Thomas More was appalled. He thought that, he said, Tyndale has deliberately mistranslated portions of the scripture. But what had happened was Thomas More was only familiar with the Latin Vulgate. And William Tyndale had based his translation on Erasmus's New Testament. Some quick background, when Constantinople fell, the Greek scholars fled the area and came to Europe and it brought back a Renaissance interest, revival in the language of Greek. And so Erasmus compiled a Greek New Testament and which it was like a study Bible which he put alongside a new translation of the Latin version. Some people think he included the Greek not because he was trying to get a Greek New Testament out there but he was just trying to show people how superior his Latin translation was to Jerome's Latin translation. But the thing is, the Latin Vulgate had been the official Bible of the church for a thousand years. And because some of the Latin words were a little vague, whole doctrines had crept up around in precise interpretations from the Vulgate. One of the biggest ones was Jesus in the Vulgate says, do penance, and which they thought was a proof text for the whole sacrament of penance which was the act of confessing and, and then doing alms. Uh, Erasmus, in the Greek New Testament, showed that the Greek word actually meant do be penitent or repent, which is how Protestants interpret it. But it's a big difference between 
repenting, which is a change of mind, and do penance, which is salvation by works. So that's just one example of how Thomas More said, look, you're corrupting the Bible, you're deliberately changing it. Tyndale was hurt by this, because he was being as faithful to God's word as he could. Erasmus, by the way, was considered the Einstein of the time. Just like we don't know much about Einstein's ideas, we know he was a smart guy. People would have heard of Erasmus as the smart fellow. <coughs> but Tyndale's Bible was illegal, but they could not stop this problem of the Bible spreading throughout England. Tunstall, who was the Bishop of London, had an idea. He said, well, if I can't stop the Bibles, if I can't destroy enough Bibles once they get here, I am going to Europe and I'm going to buy up all the Bibles I can before they even make it here. So, <coughs> he talked to Packington, who was the publisher of the Tyndale Bible. He said, I want to buy up all your Bibles. Packington said, okay. I think he knew what Tunstall wanted to burn him. But Packington went to Tyndale and said, you know, the Bishop of London wants to buy up all your Bibles. Should I sell them to him? Tyndale said, yeah, go for it. The money will help me in my pursuit of this. And when people see that Tunstall is, buy, is burning the Bible, they will be so outraged, which will help our cause. And Tyndale also said, why don't you also, also tell them, look, unless you buy up the type, we'll just keep printing Bibles. So Tunstall bought all the Bibles and all the type, and he went home very smug that he had put an end to the English Bible. Tyndale took the money and was able to put it towards a revised edition, a new and improved <laughs> edition of the New Testament, funded, thank you very much, by the Catholic Church. <laughs> Tyndale's work is apparently terrific. Apparently most of the Beatitudes are just like how they ended up in the King James Bible. Tyndale was betrayed, though, because he was an outlaw, a man befriended him, and one night when Tyndale was going to a party, this man said, can I come visit you that night, knowing that Tyndale was going to go to this party? And Tyndale said, well, I'm going to be gone, but why don't you join me? So while he was on his way to the party, this betrayer had contacted some police and said, I will direct you, and he betrayed him. And Tyndale was captured and put into a tower, and... He was led to the burning stake, and he, where he was strangled and then burned to death. But just before he died, he said, Oh Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Some people, he was working on his old, uh, the Old Testament time. Maybe he had been translating that story of Elijah, where Elijah said to the servant, Open the, I don't know, I can't remember if it was Elijah or Elisha, but anyways, he said to the servant, Open, open the servant's eyes so that he can see your power. Maybe he was working on that translation right then, but that's when he said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Well, a year later, to after when Tyndale was born, uh, died, this political events had conspired, and Thomas Cranmer and Thomas Cromwell wanted a Bible published in English, and a man by the name of Miles Coverdale finished the translation of Tyndale, including the Old Testament, and under the or order of King Henry VIII that was ordered to be put in every church. So even though Tyndale died for the cause, the English Bible started spreading. It had a few quirks. That Coverdale's Bible is known as the Bug Bible, because in Psalms it says that will keep him safe from the bugs that fly by night, where we have it translated pestilence or terror. So the Bible was spreading. This began a tumultuous time for the common people of England who did not understand what was going because the church began a series of flip-flops between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Henry married Anne Boleyn and the seers and astrologers said she's pregnant with a son. Thomas was excited. The astrologers read the stars wrong and out popped Elizabeth. So, how to get rid of Anne Boleyn? 
he's getting to be an elderly man. His biological clock is ticking, and he still has no son. So Cromwell tortured a soldier into confessing that he had had an affair with Anne Boleyn. And Anne Boleyn was adamant that she was innocent. Anne Boleyn, by the way, let me back up a little bit, loved Tyndale's writings. And when Tyndale wrote a book, Anne Boleyn would mark pages with her fingernail for Henry to read on Tyndale's writing. Because Tyndale had argued that the king should be over the pope, which Henry actually liked that idea. But anyway, he Anne Boleyn was executed for her alleged affair. She wanted the French to decapitate her for a couple reasons. One, the English were not real good at beheadings at this time. Sometimes they would hire the local butcher and their aim with the axe was not real good. You want the aim to be good. The French used the sword. So Anne wouldn't have to bow to anybody. And now away went Anne, very sadly. King Henry then married a woman, Jane Seymour, who finally gave birth to a son, Edward. But she died in labor, or from complications of it shortly after. At this point, Thomas Cromwell thought it would be really good for the king of England, who was becoming Protestant, to align with some other Protestant nations. There was the, the nation, the state of Cleves, which is somewhere up there. The daughter of the king, her name was Anne, Anne of Cleves. And Cromwell said, it would be really good politically for you to marry Anne of Cleves. And Henry said, well, let's have a painting of her done so I can see if she's a person I want to marry. And he said, under strict orders, be as accurate as you can in this painting. Henry saw the painting and fell in love with this Anne. But when Anne got off the boat, it turns out that the painting had been incredibly flattering. <laughs> Henry married her, but never lived, never actually consummated the marriage. He called her his mare of Flanders. And she survived. The marriage was annulled. And Thomas Cromwell was beheaded for treason. <laughs> <laughs> but Cromwell, I liked his perspective. On the morning that he was to be executed, he said to a fellow prisoner who was executed, he said, breakfast will be sharp, but by God's grace, we're going to have a glorious supper. I thought that is a terrific perspective. If any of you are led to be executed, breakfast will be sharp, but we're going to think beyond what you're going to face afterwards. At this point, Henry fell in love with another young woman named Catherine Howard, who it turns out had had an affairs before she got married. So Henry VIII had Parliament pass a bill that made it treasonous to marry the king if you had been immoral before you were married. So then she was executed for treason, beheaded. This poor girl, the night before, she had an execution block brought to her so she could practice the feel of holding still, keeping her head still in the block. And she was executed. At this point, he married one more time to a woman by the name of Catherine Parr, who, at this point, Henry was just old and fat and ugly, oozing sores on his legs. So she was more of just a nurse, nothing romantic about it. But if you want to remember this hap what happened to Henry's wives, someone has made up a rhyme. This will help you remember. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. There's the history of, Catherine's of Henry's wives, three of whom were named Catherine, Two were named Anne, and one was named Jane. Before Henry's death, the Bible had spread throughout England, and it was being sung in taverns, and common people were getting a hold of it. And Henry was actually very sad by this, because he did revere God's word, but he didn't appreciate what would happen. Towards the end of his reign, he brought back some... Uh, 
pro-Catholic-like, not Catholic, but they were Catholic-like uh, principles for the church, which, was, which limited church freedom. But then Henry died. So his successor, i got to move things along here. His successor was Edward, the daughter of Jane Seymour. Edward, at this point, was only nine years old. He was king for six years old. His uncle, Edward Seymour, was very sympathetic to the Protestant cause. So for six years, Protestantism spread like crazy. The Church of England, the Bible was being put everywhere. It was so popular, the Bible had to be chained in the churches so people wouldn't take it. Anybody who had money was trying to buy the Bible. Think of how their religious world was completely shaken. You need to turn to the Bible for some authority. Edward died of tuberculosis at 15. So that meant the next in line was Mary, who Edward had tried to declare illegitimate. But Mary, and Edward actually named another successor, but the people wanted Mary. Mary came to the throne in her late 30s as a bitter woman. She had been, her parents' marriage by the Protestant church had been declared null, which made her illegitimate, which meant she faced outcasts and persecution from that. So she came to the throne with an axe to grind against the Protestant religion. She tried to reconcile with the Pope. She brought back in a series of, of Catholic measures, and she began a vigorous persecution of the Protestant leaders. Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop under Henry, he, she forced him to recant. And this poor old man, afflicted in his cell, he would write a recantation apologizing for his work and his allegiance to Rome, and then he'd tear it up. And then he'd get scared of dying again, so he'd write another recantation, then he'd tear it up. I think he did this five times, and finally on the fifth one, he decided, I'm going to stick with it. And he gave this recantation. But uh, Mary said, you're still going to die anyway. So on the morning of his execution, when he was supposed to publicly renounce his Protestant doctrines, he said, I've been a coward. I declare that the Pope is the Antichrist. The Bible is the inspired word of God. And this hand that wrote the recantations, I will hold over the fire, and that will be the first to burn. And true to his word, he found the courage at the end to, to stand up for Christ. And as he was being burned at the stake, he piled his hand over the fire until his fingers were burned off. And then he, then he died. But he inspired a lot of courage, as did several other people. Two well-known bishops, Latimer and Ridley, I don't have time to get into their biographies, but they were burned. One of them died quickly, but one of them had a very painful death. Sometimes they would hang gunpowder around the neck so that when the fire hit it, it would break the suffering, but they didn't have enough, um, the wood didn't get hot enough, so it caused the gunpowder to go off only injuring him and burned some limbs, and it took several hours where he was just in extreme pain. I don't remember which of them. One of them said to the other, Rittimer said to Ladley, play the man, for today we will light a candle that by God's grace will not be extinguished. Under Mary, but. Well, 300, maybe 400 Protestants were burned at the stake. For the past, since Wycliffe, like the last couple hundred years, only 180. So she really intensified the persecution of Protestants. She made it again illegal to own scriptures. So people were dying for owning Tyndale's Bible or for Protestant causes. This is where you hurt for the common people again, because they're not literate, they don't understand what's going on. And one day, they, they're supposed to swear allegiance to the Pope. Then they're supposed to call the Pope the Antichrist. And then they're told if they even breathe anything against the Pope, they'll be put in jail for it. So they don't know what to believe. Tons of Protestants fled England. They went to Geneva, where they were very impressed with Calvin. Thankfully, Mary's reign only lasted six years, and everything went wrong for her. She married her cousin, Philip II of Spain. They 
he lived in England for a couple years and he went to Spain and they were separated. She lost the last bit of land that England owned in France. She lost the popularity of the people. She was a hated woman. She ended up dying. She thought she was pregnant. It turned out to be a tumor and she died. So six years. Now that, the next in line was Elizabeth. She was just late teens, maybe early 20s. She came to the throne. First of all, she had to declare the church Protestant again, otherwise she wasn't legitimate. At this point, the Catholic Church declared that Mary, Queen of Scots, was the rightful Queen of England. Mary, Queen of Scots, was, I think, a great-granddaughter of Henry VII. She herself, I'm just going to briefly get into her story. Remember, Mary, Queen of Scots, was engaged to the French prince, became the Queen of France for a year. Then she came back to Scotland, where she found Scotland crawling with Protestants. During the last few years, they had overthrown the Catholic regent, who was actually Mary's mother, and were establishing Protestantism, and that was the popular religion of the time. They told Mary that she could have a private mass, which John Knox was very much against. He said he was more afraid of a single Catholic mass than he was of an, armed man, an, ar an army of 10,000 men. Because he, he thought that nations make a covenant with God, and that when the nation is idolatrous, it brings God's judgment. So to have your own queen committing idolatry, thought put Scotland in great danger. He was very much against it. Poor Queen Mary, she had a rough life. She fell in love with a very conceited, immoral man who was her cousin, Henry Stuart, or Lord Darnley. They were married, but she quickly found out that there was no love there. She became pregnant, and Lord Darnley accused her of having a baby with the sec Italian secretary, Rizzio. Lord Darnley had Rizzio murdered in front of Mary, hoping that she, the trauma would cause her to miscarry. She didn't miscarry, and she gave birth to a son who became James I of England, who authorized the King James Bible, which I will get into later. But Lord Darnley was not popular with Mary or with the princes. He was poisoned. Then the house he was in, then he got sick. The house that he was in exploded, but he escaped before he died, where he was finally strangled in the garden. He finally got the hint that people didn't want him around. Mary ended up marrying Lord Bothwell. Sorry to burden you with more names, but they were married for a little while. Then she had to flee England, and she took asylum under Queen Elizabeth in England. Meanwhile, James, was only a year at the time, was made the King of Scotland, and he was raised by Presbyterian Calvinist princes. And he was the King of Scotland till about the age of 37. Elizabeth, meanwhile, had a very, she was a very wise woman. She was very moderate in her beliefs. All that mattered for her was that someone took the name of Christ. She was happy with that. She didn't want to get into any of these squabbles. She did want conformity. So she had this little fashion show where she said, this is how you, all you priests have to dress in these vestments. So all the priests were going to dress the same way. These people coming back from Geneva, they wanted a purified church. People derisively called them the Puritans because they were hung up on purity. And they adapted, they took the name for themselves as has often happened with other insults. But that's where the Puritans came from. Puritans argued with Elizabeth saying, no, we want our own freedom. They developed a congregational rule. But Elizabeth was good to the Protestants. She was also the most eligible queen Lots of people vied for her and the effeminate Edward III tried to marry her. Her ex-brother-in-law, Philip II, tried for years to marry her. And when it became clear that Elizabeth didn't want to marry him, he assembled a large group of ships called the Spanish Armada, and he was going to go conquer England. 
an English pilot, Sir Francis Drake, who also completed one of the first people to sail around the whole world, sabotaged the efforts to build this, these ships. He burned all the dry wood that was going to have the barrels of supplies. So they were forced to make barrels out of green wood, which caused the water to spoil. That was the Spanish people's first problem. The idea for the Spanish was to take this armada, gather men in the Netherlands, and then sail across to England. Communication was terrible. By the time they got to the shores of Netherlands, they realized that their boats couldn't even reach the harbor. They were too big. The water was too shallow. And they didn't have boats to ferry them across. So they were stuck out at sea, and then what is called the Protestant storm came and killed many, wiped out the Spanish armada. More people were killed by the Spanish storm than were killed by the English people. You, I think you see God's hand at, here. Because this, the, free, the religious freedom in Protestant of Englandism was the cradle of where the religious freedom that came to the New World when the Puritans came. And the other people who came from England who, who established Christianity in North America. And if the Catholics had won, religious freedom would have been completely different because the whole idea of religious freedom comes from the Protestant branches of Christianity, not the Catholicism. So we see God's hand at work there. Is this, is this you guys feeling totally overwhelmed? Okay. Elizabeth died without an heir. She was probably not a virgin, but she was known as the Virgin Queen. But she had a really a peaceful time. Mary was in prison for 19 years. Elizabeth just could not bring her to kill her second cousin, or second cousin once removed. But during this time, it turns out that Mary was doing several plots with the Jesuits to, to assassinate Elizabeth. The Pope had actually said that whoever kills Elizabeth does no sin, but gains merit because Elizabeth is endangering millions of souls with her heresy. When Elizabeth heard that, she realized it's very dangerous for a Catholic to have Catholics when, they're when their leader, spiritual leader is telling them to kill me. So she made past laws against Catholics being allowed to travel, Catholics were not allowed to convert. She really clamped down on Catholics because of the Pope's ruling. Elizabeth died without an heir, so the next in line, and she said, put my, I think this was her second cousin, James, who was James the, the sixth of Scotland, so James VI came to England and became James, James VI of Scotland, came to England, became James I of England. Puritans and Protestants were glad because here they thought James has been raised by Puritans, by Calvinist Presbyterians, I should say. He's going to be very sympathetic to our cause. James was not sympathetic to their cause. He told the Anglican Church, which was what the Church of England was called, he said, don't worry, I am not Calvinist. I was raised by Calvinists, but I saw my time there as being imprisoned. I was among them, but I was not of them. The Protestants, when he met them, he laid it down. He said, you are going to conform to my rules, or you are going to be sent into exile. The only good that came out of this meeting with the, with the Puritans was they had asked for an authorized translation of the Bible. And he said, you know, I think that's a good idea. I'd love to give my name <laughs> to a Bible. So he, he gathered roughly 50 translators who worked on it for a couple years. He divided the Bible into six sections, and he would have a team of translators work on each section. And that ended up becoming the King James Bible. It was not popular at first, what the Puritans loved was the Geneva Bible, which was done by translators who had done a lot of their work in Geneva. But eventually the, the King James Bible caught on. King James was a very well-read person. He read Calvin. 
Winston Churchill said about James I that he was a man with a closed mind and a weakness for discourse. He was not a popular king, he was boring. One historian said his tongue was so big to his mouth that made him slobber when he spoke and made his, combined with his Scottish brogue, made his English un incomprehensible to the English ear. He was also an immoral person who was homosexual. He would fall in love with handsome young men and make them uh, rulers of certain areas. While his wife was dying, he was too busy having an affair with another man. James I was very much against the Puritans. He wrote a book called The Book of Sports, which he said must be practiced on Sundays, where they wanted to keep the Sabbath clean. But he said, you know, you need to exercise. The Catholics wanted to get rid of James I. How many of you have heard of Guy Fawkes Day? Guy Fawkes. The Catholics came up with a brilliant idea. Let's go under Parliament, the, where they meet, and put a bunch of barrels of gunpowder, and we'll blow up the whole lot of them. The King and all of Parliament. That'll be a great way. But a message was sent to one of the Catholic members of Parliament saying, um, don't show up to work this day. <laughs> which made some people suspicious, and Parliament was delayed a day, and they found Guy Fawkes under there with a fuse and 38 barrels of gunpowder, <laughs> which was called the Gunpowder Plot. The Puritans, as one historian said, preferred to do their work above ground rather than under Parliament, in Parliament rather than under Parliament. And they were a thorn in the side to King James. King James... Under English law, the king was not allowed to raise taxes unless, pure, unless Parliament gave him permission. But he tried to rule without Parliament. King James's ideas were much more similar to the other king's absolutist views. He thought, God has made me king, and everything I say is the divine will of God. His son Charles tried to rule the same way. Charles II was married to Henry of Navarre's daughter, just so you know. So Charles II and Louis XIV were first cousins. It was during Charles's reign that there was the great migration of Puritans because he married a Catholic wife, he brought in Archbishop Laud, who was very much against the Puritans and he was persecuting them. So several of them fled first to Holland and then to North America. During Charles's reign, something like 20,000 Puritans left England, and 40,000 non-Puritans also left. And I think I'm going to have to leave it there, as far as the history of England. I will give you a sneak peek. Charles I ended up having a lot of trouble with Parliament. Parliament overthrew him. He declared a civil war against Parliament. Parliament was led by... Oliver Cromwell, who was a Puritan general, who defeated the royalist forces and abolished the monarchy in England for a while. He killed Charles I, and he made himself Lord Protectorate of England. So England experienced a time of Puritan rule, where Christmas was outlawed, and the theater was closed, along with bullfights and bingo. I think I made up the last part. <laughs> I just briefly need to talk about the Thirty Years' War that was happening in Europe during the time of, from 1618 to 1648. Europe, this whole area, was completely ravaged by wars between Catholics and Protestants. And the motivations for these wars are very complicated. So rather than give you the sordid tale, I just want to say there was several forces. Protestants were fighting for religious freedom. Some of the Protestants had become Calvinists. And remember, the Peace of Augsburg did not, made no profession for Calvinists. So they wanted freedom. Catholic princes were fighting against this. There was the, fam the Habsburg family, which was Spanish, and was actually in Austria and in Spain. 
They were fighting for land. In France, under the Louis Thirteenth and Fourteenth, under Louis the Thirteenth was a cardinal named Richie Lou, who was very devious. He would sometimes give money to Catholic princes in the war, and he would sometimes give money to Protestant princes in the war. Because he didn't care about the religion, all he cared about was the authority of his king. Something that was important to Richie Liu was that the Habsburg or the Spanish kingdom did not get too powerful. So anytime it looks like the Habsburgs were making too much progress, he would send money to the Protestants. This war went on, it was a series of wars for 30 years. The population of Europe at the start was about 20 million. 30 years later, a third of the, the population was down to about 12 million. Population shrunk by about 7 million people from senseless killings between Protestants and Catholics, although the majority of it was more about land and national rights than it was religion. People died from the slaughter and people died from diseases as refugees would overwhelm a city and the sanitation was so poor that they would die from new diseases as they carried the plague around. During this time, there was a Swedish king who was surrounded by Habsburg territory. So he entered the war wanting to weaken the Habsburg Empire. His men were very well trained. He was Protestant and he was very strict. Whether his army followed it is another story. But he had rules against uh, immorality, against swearing, against blasphemy. And these men were very trained in some of the best strategy. And he streaked across Europe. Maybe that was the wrong word. <laughs> he marched across Europe fully clothed and defeated Catholic prince after Catholic prince. There's some entertaining stories. One poor Catholic prince... The military general had died, left a novice. So this Catholic prince was all excited about his battle strategy. He heard that Gustavus Adolphus, was the name of the Swedish king, was marching with his armies. So he had a castle which had an inner wall, then it had an outer wall, and then it had, a, had the, the wall with the drawbridge. This Catholic prince lined up his men outside. The idea was fire one shot, retreat in an orderly manner across the drawbridge, bring up the drawbridge, and then defend the outer wall. Well, King Adolphus's army came so fast that the men were in disarray before they even got a shot fired. So they fled in a very unorderly manner while King Adolphus's men captured the drawbridge before they were able to shut it. He said, men, retreat. We're going to try the same strategy in between the outer wall and the inner wall. As soon as they come through with their battering ram, we'll fire and then we'll go into the inner wall. So all these men are lined up between the outer wall and the inner wall with their guns poised. Now King Adolphus had some Scottish engineers who I guess liked playing with explosives and had developed some bombs. So they hung the bombs on the outer wall, stood back, and it blew a hole in the wall. These men standing there, these Catholic men also had a cannon aimed there that they were going to blow through <laughs> the Protestant army, were so shocked by this explosion that they ran every which way and tried to retreat into the inner wall. So the Protestants marched in, they took the cannon, which Catholics had never fired, turned it around and blasted <laughs> their way right into the Catholic territories. That's a little bit of taste. <laughs> There's another quick story about a Catholic prince who, a military general, he captured a town and he said, I'm gonna give you a sporting chance. If you can find a man who can drink three liters of wine in one shot, I will spare your town. So they found this big guy who downed three liters of wine in one gulp and then slept for three days. <laughs> but the city was spared. So 
it's really not right to <laughs> show some levity about a horrible atrocity. Um, by the way, I forgot to mention, the start of the Thirty Years' War happened because in 1618, Bohemia, which, oh, I shined it out the wrong direction. <laughs> Bohemia was right there. One of the, um, wow, one of the emperors at the time had said, you can, you can be the king of Bohemia. The next Roman, Holy Roman Empire, who were, they were severely inbred by this time, said, no, you can't do that. He sent his officials to Bohemia saying, I'm going to set up my own authority. This was in Prague. The citizens of Prague marched into the castle. They took the king's representatives and they threw them out a window, out of the top of the castle. Said, look to your Virgin Mary to save you now. And they threw them out the window and they landed in a pile of dung, which saved their life. And the Protestant <laughs> prince looked down and said, wow, Mary did save you. <laughs> Eyewitnesses at the time, they heard the secretary land on top of the boss, on top of the manure, apologizing for landing on him. <laughs> this act, and English is so cool, we have a word that means to throw out a window. It's the, called the defenestration of Prague. Did I pronounce that right, Grandpa? So I, it comes from the Latin word for window, which is fenestrate. So, if you say to someone, I'm going to defenestrate you, it means I'm going to throw you out the window. So, 